Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 4. I'll be reading verses 1 through 11 from the English Standard Version. Having concluded our studies in Revelation, the book of Revelation, we concluded with chapter 17. Of course, there's more to be said about that book, and there are plenty of resources on our sermon audio page and on sermon audio generally, where you can avail yourself of a more in-depth, thorough study. I recommend heartily you visit the Bonson, Bonson Institute page on Sermon Audio, where you will find all of Dr. Greg Bonson's lectures on Revelation, one of the finest uh, presentations from the partial preterist post-millennial perspective on that book ever given, and unfortunately never put into print. Having said that, before I transition to my next series of studies, I wanted to take time on this Lord's Day to speak to you from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 4. Because some things that were suggested in our last study in Revelation come to mind based on this text, and I suppose that maybe it's providential that we're having our monthly fellowship meal today, and so I've titled the message, Faith and Not Food. But please listen now as I read these verses. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, I'm going to end the reading there, the the episode of the temptations of Christ by the devil at the beginning of Christ's ministry, go on through chapter, excuse me, verse 11. But I'm going to focus just on these verses today. Uh, verses 1 through, is it 4? Yes, 1 through 4. And thereby, this ends the reading of God's infallible and inerrant word. There was a study done some years ago in one of those Christian magazines, I think it was Discipleship Journal, where the readers were asked to rank areas of their greatest spiritual challenge. What sort of things are particularly challenging for you as a believer, they were asked, And the list came out this way. First was the challenge of materialism. Then secondly, pride. Then self-centeredness, laziness. It was a tie between anger and bitterness and sexual lust, envy, gluttony, and lying. Those were considered the big challenges spiritually. Now the respondents to that survey also noted that their temptations were more powerful and almost overwhelming when they had either neglected their time with God or when they were physically tired. And they said also that the ability, by God's grace, to resist the temptations was most effective by prayer, by avoiding compromising situations, by Bible study, and by being accountable to someone else, another believer. So in this gospel reading that you just heard, We're taken back to the time of the earliest days of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the beginning of that ministry, after his fasting 40 days, he's confronted with several major temptations, including the one that we're focusing on now. And when you look at all of them together, they are the most basic temptations in life. And they form the foundation of all the other temptations. The lust for power and pride, ego, food, you know, carnal desires, that sort of thing. So at the beginning of his ministry, he spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness fasting. Now he did that 
to draw closer to his heavenly father and to reflect upon his upcoming ministry. At least that's my estimation as to why he did it. And while there, Satan confronts him with his alternatives to God's plan for life and living. You see, friends, every society has something at its foundation that gives that society life and motivation. We could say the same thing for every individual, too. And that foundation is either the Bible or Satan's counterfeit alternative. And where that fa- when that foundation is the latter, that is satanic, the operating assumptions of the people and of their governments, by the way, is that it's God Almighty and not human beings who've, who's got to change. Lord, you need to adapt to our needs. You need to evolve to adapt to human situations. Man comes to God with his fist in his face and confronts him with an ultimatum. He demands that God adapt himself to the humanistic view of life. Humanity's demand upon God is the demand to have paradise on earth in terms of material abundance. And humanity's cry is, God, give us our heart's desires and passions and then we'll be happy. Now what is most remarkable about this is that it is self-defeating. It is suicidal. Unhappiness, depression, and alienation are often highest among those who have achieved material wealth and riches. I have referred to this man, I think, on other occasions, but the late Austrian psychiatrist Viktor Frankl wrote the monumental book Man's Search for Meaning. Now, Frankl was a Jew. He was not a Christian. But he had the misfortune of being interred in one of the concentration camps in World War II. But it gave him an opportunity not only to survive, by God's grace, I guess we could say, but it gave him an opportunity to observe from a spiritual standpoint, a profoundly spiritual standpoint, people in these horrifically dire circumstances. And he wrote about that in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, and he once observed that when human beings are focused purely on achieving material abundance as the foundation for living, it leads inevitably, he said, to both personal and societal decline and destruction. One of the many side effects that we see today among people who are given over to materialism is the mental sickness that comes from having no real purpose or goal in life except that of material or carnal satisfaction. Do you know the uh, philosophy that he who dies with the most toys wins? You know, um, if someone has so much wealth and money, they don't know what to do with it. And, And granted, that doesn't describe any of us in this room, although we're not immune from having this problem, but especially among people whose main goal is accumulating wealth for power and pleasure, that's not a goal or a purpose in life. Satan's alternative to God's way is to have us as human beings associate life and living with, I'm going to use this term broadly, bread. That is, life's goal is to achieve satisfaction of our material carnal desires. And Satan's lie is made obvious in the countless examples seen in the lives of those who have, as I've already stated, achieved material success. But who then find it increasingly difficult to live a meaningful life. Now the scene of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness takes us 
theologically and biblically back to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. They lived in a paradise of material blessing, and it was premised and founded on God's law word. But they rejected that foundation, the foundation of that abundance in which they were living, and they succumbed to sin. And that led to the Garden of Paradise being turned into a howling wilderness and separation from God. And I think it's fitting that Jesus here is seen to be in a wilderness setting, therefore, where he faces a temptation. He comes into this situation as the divine Son of God, the second Adam, the new man, who withstands the temptations of the satanic alternatives. And he does that so that a new creation may come forth, a new kind of paradise, a regaining of paradise, if you will. Now I want you to look at chapter 4, verse 3, Matthew 4, verse 3 again. Notice what Satan, the tempter, says to Christ. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So in the first part of that statement, he says, if, if you are the Son. In other words, you know, maybe there's a little bit of doubt about this. There's no certainty here. And not only that, in the Greek text of what Satan says to him, at least, it's possible to translate this as if you are a son of God, not the son of God. So there is in Satan's statement, we may conjecture, I think, reasonably so, an effort to verbally manipulate Jesus and, frankly, any of us reading this story. If, if Jesus is, well, there's some doubt, right? If he is a son of God, well, who else could be a son of God if he's not the son of God? Well, I think that Satan would be putting himself forth as a candidate, as a son of God. That's what he's implying here, I think. Hey, come on, Jesus, join with all of us who are already sons of God. Demonstrate who you are by doing what I ask. Now, I want you to think for a moment about bread. Now, we have bread every Lord's Day as we come to the table of the Lord. We're going to adjourn here a little while to a fine fellowship meal, and there'll be an abundance of bread in some form or other. You know, for people in most ancient societies, and for many societies still today, bread means food. It is the basic food of the diet to people throughout history and to this day all over the world. And since bread is food, and since food is vital for survival, it's not unusual then to find that in bartering societies, food has functioned as money and commerce in many, many cultures. Let's see, um, you've got those cows over there. Uh, I will trade you this many loaves of bread for that cow, or I'll trade you this many loaves of bread for that many eggs. That, that's what I mean by bartering type society and culture. Food and bread are unavoidably linked to money and therefore to survival. And so we see here in this temptation of Christ that Satan understands very well that money and economics are vital components to any worldview. Now, I'm going to uh, pause here a moment and just hazard a guess that most of us in this room, when the term economics comes up, you kind of tune everything out. Uh, what did you major in in college? I majored in economics. What in the world does that look like? You know, if you major in history, you major in art, whatever, uh, major in psychology, maybe you can put something in that blank. When somebody says they major in economics, who in the world knows what that means? The news comes on, you know, we, we know what it means for an economic downturn, we understand that, but generally economics is this sort of mysterious, boring-sounding word. And yet money 
and its use and exchange are vital components to any worldview, and they are intimately connected with what God's law teaches us. So the request that Satan makes of Jesus reveals what role those things, money and economics, play in Satan's worldview. And so it's no coincidence then that when when we look around the world to see where among the most severe opposition to the message of the kingdom is today, it comes from organizations and governments that also emphasize and major in welfare, anti-poverty campaigns, world hunger relief. In the days of Jesus, at that very moment in history when he was being tempted by Satan, the government of Rome was inflating its currency. The Roman government was doing that to fool their massive populations into thinking that things were going great. Money was abundant. You see, all the stuff that we're experiencing today, this is not unique to history. And because we're largely uneducated and ignorant of the history of ancient societies and how they functioned, except, you know, the big ticket items, we don't realize that people lived in these, and we'll talk about Rome since that's the focus here, people lived in these ancient societies, they had to eat, they had to work, they did, you know, they did all kinds of things like we do in a very different circumstance, of course. But people got paid money for a living. And the Roman government, because of the nature of its government and its corruption, had to deal with this issue just like our own corrupt government does today. But by inflating their currency and, and fooling people into think that things were largely okay economically, it was a false prosperity that promoted a creeping inflation of their economy. And so Satan demands that Jesus turn the stones into bread. That demand is the demand for inflation, for material satisfaction, and for popularity in the public eye, much like the Roman government was doing. Notice what Jesus' response was in verse 4. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, in that time in Israel's history, there were many false messiahs vying for people's loyalty and attention. Now, Jesus warned that this would be the case, or was the case, in Matthew 24. We know from the corroborative historical accounts of that phase of, of both Roman and Israelite history that this was, this was true. During the Roman occupation of Palestine, especially in that uh, first century up to A.D. 100 setting, there were many different types of holy men and messiahs claiming to be the true voice of God. Now, let me ask you something. What comes quickest to your mind when you hear or read that term false messiah, fake messiah? Well, I'm guessing most people think of some crazy cult leader. But you see, in reality, the most common false messiah in that day, and by the way, in ours, is a centralized government that designates to itself sovereign godlike authority. See, in those days, the Roman emperors and their governments, they were worshipped as gods. They provided the people with mass entertainments, the circuses and spectacles, and the colosseums that dotted the landscape of the Roman Empire. And they also offered mass welfare, food subsidies, such things that were then and are still today part and parcel of what we call the welfare state. You say, well, why is the pastor talking about all that? Well, because this is Satan's alternative. This is what he's talking about here with, with Jesus. Economic salvation through the state. 
Here you see the Lord answering Satan by quoting Scripture. It is written. He says, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, I'm going to give you the context for that in just a second, but I want you to understand, God's law is certainly not uninterested and ignorant of people's financial and material needs. But the point is, God's law teaches us and gives us God's standard for how to earn money, what to do with money, what constitutes just weights and measures, how to handle your crops. All of these things are given us in God's word. And it's a departure from these divine standards that has led us to the malaise where we are today or where these people in Roman society found themselves. So he says, people do not live, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Um, I want you to do this. Take out your pew Bible. Uh, you, you can use your ESV if you have it, but it might be easier. Take out your pew Bible and turn to page 68. Page 68. I'm going to read Exodus 16:4, and then I'm going to read Deuteronomy 8, 2 to 3. So that's page 68 for the one and page 180 for the other. In Exodus 16, verse 4, Then Yahweh the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Familiar story. We studied Exodus not too long ago. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 8, we read this. Again, this is page 180 of your pew Bible. Deuteronomy 8, 2 to 3. And you shall remember the whole way that Yahweh your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart and whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, here it is, but by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. So those then are the verses and the context of what Jesus is telling Satan here. It is this Deuteronomy passage, Moses is commenting on the incident in the wilderness where the manna fell from heaven to feed the Israelites. They had been delivered from Egyptian bondage. They had seen firsthand the mighty acts and power of Yahweh God. How he had destroyed the Egyptians and ruined their blasphemous government. They had seen, therefore, how God cared for them. But as soon as they come, become the least bit uncomfortable, and maybe getting tired of eating this bread, as soon as problems arose... They complained against God and Moses. God gave them this manna, this bread, as a test to teach them that, that his providential care is greater than all of their problems. And it was given to teach them the importance of faith. And it was given to them to rebuke them for their lack of it. You see, it was God's intention for them to learn that they were totally dependent upon him every step of the way. He it was who delivered them, and now how dare they show a lack of trust at this point. But if you know the story, you know, sadly, that they refused to have faith and trust in Yahweh. They refused to understand the message God was sending them. They took the manna as the basis of their relationship with God. But the basis was supposed to be faith and not food. So they demanded more and more manna. And there was less and less faith. Another way of seeing that is that their faith was in economic fulfillment, not in their creator. 
And that explains something, I think, very, very important. How that their descendants, the descendants of these Israelites, years later, they were looking for a Messiah who would lead them to military and material victory. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 6, verse 15. I'm going to read this verse. We're going to, well, I just turn over to John 6. Hold your place here in Matthew 4. John 6, verse 15 Jesus has taken the five loaves and fish and miraculously expanded them and distributed them. And notice what it says here. Perceiving then that they, that is the Jews, were about to come and take him by force to make him their king, Jesus withdrew to a mountain by himself. So the context there is that when the Jews saw that Jesus, when he could do these miraculous powers to, to multiply food, They tried to take him forcibly to compel him to become their king to lead their government. This is the kind of king they wanted. One who would provide them food for nothing. They wanted cradle-to-grave security from an earthly leader, an earthly government. But Jesus rebukes them severely, and he rejected their efforts. If you look down at chapter 6, verse 31, Jesus, what he says to them, what, what the Jews, excuse me, what the Jews say to Jesus here in 631, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. But then listen to Jesus' response to their demand. If you look over at verses 48 to 51 of John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In other words, those Israelites in the desert, they did realize their economic dreams. And the result was their decline and death. And with only two exceptions, that generation of Israelites were all apostate. They demanded salvation on their terms and not God's. But the God of Scripture offers salvation only on His terms. Man cannot choose God. Only God can choose man. The paradise on earth that humanistic man would create looks good on paper. It looks good, you know, in the uh, virtual reality computer-generated models. But it is ultimately one that leads to death, and it is a poor and fatal substitute for the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Today, in our time, voices cry out for more bread, more material things, instead of more faith. The Bible tells us that God knows our material needs. God doesn't deny our prayers and our needs for those things and and our desire to have them legitimately met. God fully understands that we have material and physical needs, but God wants us to understand that bread alone won't do it. Thus the hope of the world is not found in economic security. It is found only in Christ and his law word. Now in our history there have been a few people who've understood that. I think no finer example of this is that when these United States were founded, at least the original 13 colonies. They were initially grounded in biblical principles with a strong Christian foundation to the various state constitutions. These United States were established as free and independent states in a land that 
was almost as much a, a paradise physically as the Garden of Eden. But although the, the, the problems were present from the very beginning of our history, especially in the late 18th century, the United States turned away from Christian principles, and now we have a nation that our ancestors would hardly recognize. They would not recognize it at all. Let us understand that God may well deny us some answer to prayer or some plea for help in this area. And he may do that because he wants us to rely on him alone. Our eyes should be fixed upon Christ who belongs to God the Father and who alone brings us true joy and peace. That's the reason, for example, why in the epistle to James, James says in James 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Today, in the 21st century, we face similar issues and trials as the people did in Jesus' time. We look at our world today, and we see that faith, too, is being tested and tried by world events, matters relating to money and material things. I believe the Lord would have us understand, however, that the key to our future, the key to America's future, the, t- the key to the world's future is not economics. It's not cheap oil. It's not the gold price or any of the rest of these things. It's not anything other than Christ and his law. With God's word as the foundation, we can easily address such problems as poverty and hunger and money and labor and economics. And you know why we can? And why this is the key? Because Christ is the bread for all of life. Amen. Let us pray.